Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. If you remember last week, what we talked about was the ministry of John the Baptist, who was kind of this really strange, weird guy who showed up in the wilderness, wearing weird clothes, eating weird things, and preaching this message of repentance and asking people to go pass through the Jordan River and be baptized in order to confess their sins and somehow bring about this ultimate kingdom of God. And we talked about how John the Baptist was this really cool dude, and he became super popular very quickly. But ultimately, he told everybody, yeah, you might think I'm a big deal, but I'm just the opening act and something bigger is coming. And then sure enough, Jesus shows up on the scene and now he is a grown man and he comes to John and he asks to be baptized. And as soon as he is baptized, the spirit of God descends upon Jesus and the father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it's just this whole weird spectacle where God himself affirms that Jesus has this unique and special relationship with him. That is where we pick up with in Matthew chapter 4. And this is what we read. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, so right off the bat, in just the very first verse, we see that something weird is going on here. Uh, You might ask, why does Matthew go on to share this story? Uh, And I think that the main reason he shares this story is because it is the thing that happened, chronologically speaking, immediately after Jesus' baptism. However, we've got to go a little bit beyond that in trying to understand this because you got to realize that there's a lot of stories that happened in Jesus' life that Matthew does not share. And so apparently the story about Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness is so crucial to what he's trying to communicate about Jesus, especially so early on in his gospel that he feels the need to include this. Uh, And I think there's different reasons why he would do this. I think one just goes to the whole thing that we've been looking at about how Jesus is following in the footsteps of the people of Israel, right? And so if Israel has become the new Egypt uh, and the leaders in charge have become the new Pharaoh and Jesus has passed through the waters... Well, this is like Israel passing through the Red Sea. And after they passed through the Red Sea, what did they do? They followed the Spirit of God and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They followed the pillar into the wilderness and they were tested in the wilderness. And sure enough, that's exactly what we're going to see here. What we're going to see over the course of this section is that Jesus is going to be tempted um, at least, like he's tempted multiple times, but we list, we get three examples that Matthew lists. And these examples are all going to be instances wherein the devil is tempting Jesus to do something, and each of the temptations is going to become stronger and harder to resist, yet each of these temptations, Jesus is going to quote scripture to combat the devil. And every single one of the scriptures that Jesus quotes comes from the time period of the people of Israel being in the wilderness. And we're going to see that all the temptations are referencing back to that wilderness time period. And so I think one reason why Matthew shares this story is because this is simply where we are in Israel's history as Jesus is kind of living it out, right? He has passed through the waters and just as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years to be tested and tempted, well, so Jesus is going to be in the wilderness for 40 days to be tested and tempted. 
But I think beyond that, uh, this is also super important for Matthew to communicate who Jesus is as the king, right? Because I've made the argument that really Matthew chapters 1 through 4 are all about Matthew demonstrating to his original Jewish audience that Jesus has the necessary credentials and qualifications to be the Messiah. Because if you're trying to convince Jewish people to even consider the plausibility of Christianity as a legitimate fulfillment of Judaism, you've got to convince them that the central figure, Jesus, has a valid claim to the throne. And so what he's been doing over the course of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 is basically just listing out reason after reason why Jesus has a valid claim to that throne. And I think that's no different right here, because what we see is that Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And this is something that we see being true in our own lives. We not, might not be led into literal wildernesses, but oftentimes God will lead us into metaphorical wildernesses of our own lives in order to test us and in order to search our hearts, in order to prove who we are deep down, right? Right now, what we see about Jesus is that everything we've seen really in the preceding chapters have been different qualifications that Jesus has met just by means of who he is, right? We have seen that this is a guy who is born as the fulfillment of prophecy, who is announced as the coming king. He has the forerunner. He was born in the proper place. He is doing thing after thing that fulfills prophecy, but we haven't actually gotten to see the character of Jesus quite yet. And if you're a Jewish reader reading this, you're probably saying, okay, well, this guy has the necessary credentials, but does he have the character necessary to be the Messiah. Because guess what? There were a lot of other sons of David who might have had the necessary credentials, right? Like maybe King Ahaz, right? He had the credentials to be the Messiah, but he didn't have the character, right? He was a sinful, horrible person. And so the necessary thing that Matthew needs to respond to is he needs to let us see Jesus' character. And that's exactly what we saw Jesus saying whenever he talked to John. He said, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, right? He is coming here to demonstrate he is righteous. He is fulfilling the righteousness expected and laid in the, he is fulfilling the righteousness for which his groundwork was laid in the Old Testament. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and he is about to demonstrate his character through these series of temptations. Just like God guides us into metaphorical wilderness, uh, guides us into metaphorical wildernesses to strip us of everything we have and to really see who we are at the very base of our character. So too, Jesus is going to be stripped of everything and we're going to see who he is. The time period of the wilderness wanderings was not a good time period for the people of Israel. They grumbled against God, they tested him, and they sinned constantly and they rebelled. That's why they were there for 40 years. Jesus, on the other hand, He's going to show up, and where Israel failed, he is going to succeed. And where Israel was unfaithful, he is going to be faithful. And so, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted, right? God is guiding him into this place of temptation. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry, right? So, just like Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights two times during those wilderness wanderings, so Jesus, the greater Moses, fast 40 days and 40 nights, and he is stripped down to this place where he is very weak emotionally, physically, spiritually. He's very weak, and he's at this very weak place, and during this, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. You can see how this would be a natural temptation that anybody would bow to, but Jesus immediately responds and says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
Now, we're going to have a whole video where we explore these Old Testament quotations in depth, so don't worry, I'm going to go more in depth into all of this, and we're just going to kind of breeze through the story in this video. But one thing I do want to highlight is that every single time the devil tries to tempt Jesus, he responds with scripture. That's probably just a good application point for us in our own lives, right? We need to know scripture so that we can respond with scripture. But one really cool thing we're going to see when we explore these scriptures more in depth later on is that not only does Jesus know the scripture, he knows the scripture in its context. And if you actually explore the scripture in its greater context, you'll see that Jesus knows exactly how to respond because he truly is the embodiment of righteousness, right? Not only is Jesus saying, hey, I know a scripture that tells me man shall not live off bread alone, but he's saying there's something that I hunger more, f there's something that I hunger for more than just bread. I hunger for the word of God. And because I hunger for the word of God more than I hunger for bread, I'm not going to bow to your temptation, Satan, because I know who God is and he is the one I want to please. And I don't want to transgress what he said. And like I said, we're going to visit these scriptures more in depth later on, but it's worth quoting the context of this this first verse right here, uh, mainly because it shows the parallels that Matthew's probably going for in regards to why he's sharing the story. Because this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Everything Jesus quotes is from Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is what we read. The entire commandment that I, this is Moses speaking, that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to give to your fathers, right? So this is in the context of the wilderness, Moses is telling them to obey the commandments so that they can go in and receive the promised land. And you shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So Moses expresses, this is why God brought you into the wilderness. He wanted to test you and see what you were made of. He wanted to see what was in your heart, just like we see with Jesus right here. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. If you remember that people... If you remember the story of the people of Israel getting through the Red Sea and they go into the wilderness, one of the very first things they complain about is the fact that they don't have bread. And Moses says to them, the whole reason God brought you into the wilderness was because he wanted to teach you and to see whether you valued his word more or bread more. And the people of Israel demonstrated that they valued bread more than the word of God. And Moses said the whole purpose was to teach you that man doesn't live off bread alone, but by the word of God. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Israel cried out for bread. Jesus cried out for the word of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So we see a progression here, right? We started off in the desert and now we're up in the temple in Jerusalem. And then we're going to go from there to a mountaintop, right? And we're going to start off with just a temptation about Jesus satisfying his hunger. Now we have tempting Jesus's pride and saying, if you're the son of God, prove it. And then by the end, it's going to be bow down before me and I will give you all authority, right? And so we see there's this progression to all these different temptations, but we also see the craftiness and the wiliness of the devil right here. Because he sees that Jesus responds to his temptation with scripture, and so the devil also quotes scripture. But what you'll notice, if you actually go look at the psalm that the devil's quoting here, 
is that he's quoting it out of context. And he's really changing the ultimate message of what God was communicating through that psalm. And we're going to explore that more in depth in a later video. But I just want to highlight the smartness of the devil right here. He's very convincing, right? Oh, you want to quote the scriptures? I can quote the scriptures. That's something that we need to be aware of. The devil knows the Bible too. And he can quote it probably better than all of us. But he's also very good at twisting the context and changing it. And so ultimately what he's trying to do is he is getting, or he's trying to tempt Jesus to test God. But Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is once again a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, and this is a reference to how the people of Israel tested God at Massa, right? Whenever they were asking about water, and God said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested me at Massa. And so once again, we see Jesus succeeding where Israel failed. Israel wanted bread more than the word of God, and therefore they succumbed to the devil's temptations and they grumbled against God. Israel, they wanted water more than they wanted God, and therefore they tested God at Massa and did not trust in God, right? And so every single place where they failed, Jesus is succeeding. He is valuing God's word over his own hunger for bread. He is trusting God rather than testing God. And in the same way, we're going to see the same thing right here. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, whether or not the devil actually has the ability to give Jesus all these things, that's up for debate. Some people will try to argue, well, technically man has dominion over the earth and maybe we handed it over to the devil at the fall of man, you know, during the whole Garden of Eden thing. Uh, and so maybe the devil has a legitimate claim right here, and he's saying, I can give all this to you. Uh, and to be fair, the Bible does present the devil as the god of this world, but you have to realize that this is something that Jesus is already promised, right? He is already going to have all the kingdoms of the world at his hand. Literally, the way that the Gospel of Matthew is going to end is Jesus standing on another mountain and saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But they weren't given to him by Satan, they were given to him by God, right? And that's what we need to realize. The main thing that the devil's tempting Jesus about here is not simply tempting him by power, but it's actually tempting his patience. And it's seeing whether or not he is truly willing to endure the pain and the suffering that he has to go through in the years to come in order to ultimately bring about that kingdom, right? Because the kingdom of heaven's at hand and the devil's saying, I'll give it to you right now. And in that way, Jesus wouldn't have to go suffer. He wouldn't have to die. He could simply receive the kingdom. But the issue is that there'd be no other people to live in it, right? Because sin would still be a problem. But the devil's overlooking all that. He's saying, don't be patient. Don't wait. I'll give this to you right now if you want it. And he says, all you have to do is fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So even this, Jesus does not bow down, right? Jesus says, no, I will not bow down to you for it is written, once again, quoting Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The people of Israel, while Moses was up receiving the Ten Commandments and receiving the law, you remember what they did? They turned and they worshiped a golden calf. And therefore, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gets onto them and says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Don't turn to idolatry anymore. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness 
and they were constantly bowing down to Satan, and they were constantly go submitting to the temptations of the devil. They were demanding bread. They were testing God. They were worshiping other gods. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he doesn't do any of those things, despite the fact that he is weak, and he is emotionally, physically, and spiritually vulnerable. He resists temptation, and he succeeds, and he fulfills all righteousness. And he is not only the greater Moses, he is not only the greater Israel, he is the greater Adam, right? He stands before the serpent himself, and even though the serpent tries to tempt him to eat that fruit, he says, I will not eat, I will not bow, I will not test God, which are all things that are present at the Garden of Eden, right? It's all about, hey, doesn't this food look good to you? All right, you should eat it, right? There's the first temptation, right? It's about eating bread, right? Oh, did God really say that? No, God wants you, uh, God's afraid you're going to be like him, right? It's the idea of testing God and not trusting God. And ultimately, they bowed down to Satan's commands and they submitted to him rather than submitting to God. And therefore they were worshiping Satan because they thought that they had a kingdom to receive, right? And so all of the temptations that we see Jesus enduring right here, these are temptations that we saw Adam and Eve facing in the Garden of Eden. We saw the Israelites facing them in this order in the book of Exodus. And then they're addressed in the book of Deuteronomy when Moses is recapping it all. And we also see all of these three different things showing up in our own lives day to day. Uh, these different temptations are just, they're typical types of tests that we face, right? It is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as we read about it in First John, right? These are the three different ways that the devil typically tries to tempt us. He will tempt us by the things that we see, he'll tempt us by the things that we crave, and he'll tempt us by the pride that we feel, right? These are the three things that are common to all men. All of us are tempted in all these ways, yet Jesus is faithful, where we are unfaithful. He is faithful where Adam was unfaithful. He is faithful where Moses was unfaithful. He is faithful where Israel was unfaithful. He is faithful where we are unfaithful. And as a result, we read, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So if you just read these first 11 verses right here and you are one of the Jewish readers that Matthew's writing to, you realize this dude is the greater Adam. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Israel. Heck, he's the greater David. Because even David bowed down to the devil every now and then, right? But this guy, he is at this place of weakness, guided by the Spirit into the wilderness, yet he didn't bow down. He didn't succumb. Right now, if you're the Jewish reader reading this, you're saying, this guy doesn't just have the credentials. He doesn't just have the qualifications. He isn't just fulfilling prophecy. He has the appropriate character. He has the appropriate faithfulness. He has the appropriate fortitude. This guy can be reduced to nothing, yet his heart is still faithful to God. All of a sudden, this is drawing people in and they're saying, I think I want to know more about this guy's kingdom, which is where ultimately Matthew's heading. But then the story progresses. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Okay, so right off the bat there, we see that Jesus is fulfilling another prophecy just by where he starts his ministry, by going to Galilee. And once again, we're going to spend more time breaking down that prophecy in the weeks 
to come. But still, we have to wrestle through this a little bit because this might seem kind of odd to us that Jesus just goes to Galilee and what we're going to see is that he preaches the message John says he was going to preach, but most of his ministry is going to be performing miracles and performing acts of mercy. And that's not how John really portrayed it, is it? John said that this guy was coming to judge and to proclaim judgment. And sure enough, if you actually go look at the prophecy that Matthew's quoting right here, it is a prophecy of judgment uh, because this is from the book of Isaiah. It's in Isaiah chapter 9. And if you read the surrounding context, Isaiah has been getting on to the people of Judea and the people of Judah telling them that eventually they're going to go into exile and that there's going to be this day of great darkness. And if they continue sinning and if they don't repent, they're never going to see the light of day. But then at the same time period when Isaiah is writing this, the region up north, the northern kingdom of Israel, which would be the region of Galilee, that kingdom was already falling apart and the Assyrians had come in and they had basically overtaken that entire area. And so basically Isaiah is telling the people of Judah, hey, if you don't repent, you're never going to see the light of day. And instead, the northern kingdom, the kingdom that's falling apart, the kingdom that you look down upon, they're going to be the ones who see the light of day. And those who walk in darkness, you view them as walking in darkness, they're going to see the light before you see it right? You're going to be the ones who dwell in darkness. And those guys who you viewed as dwelling in darkness, they're going to see a great light. And so in the context of Isaiah, this is a passage of judgment on the people of Judah. And in that way, I think you can actually see that Jesus' ministry is a ministry of judgment right here, because the land of Judea is not going to be mentioned again until we get to Matthew chapter 19, until Jesus actually heads back there. But Jesus is going to spend his entire ministry in Galilee and in all these other regions, but he's not going to be going back to Judea. In the Gospel of John, we see that he went there multiple times, but Matthew explicitly doesn't mention Judah and Judea and Jerusalem for a while. And that's because I think Jesus moving into Galilee is a fulfillment of John saying he is judging them, right? The people, I talked about this a few videos ago, how the people of Judea looked down upon the people of Galilee because that was the fishermen and the farmers, but they weren't necessarily the spiritually zealous people, right? Those were the people down in Jerusalem and Judea. They were the ones who were really into religion and really into spiritual matters, right? Obviously, all the people of Israel were spiritually minded and they're pretty well-versed in scriptures and there was still a religious component, but there was this kind of snobbery amongst the people of Judea and Jesus departs from there. And that's kind of an indictment on them, right? He is leaving there. He is not going there. He was just in the wilderness of Judea. But when he comes back, he doesn't go there. Instead, he goes to Galilee, right? When he hears John has been taken into custody, he departs into Galilee. He leaves. He leaves Nazareth. That was his hometown. And he came and lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Kafarnehum, the city of Nahum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Right? So the people of Judea might have looked down on people of Galilee, but guess what? The kingdom of God is going to be born in the region of Galilee. Right? These people down in Judea, they might be proud because they're so spiritually zealous and because David reigned in Jerusalem and David was born in Bethlehem and David came from the tribe of Judah. And they might be really zealous and they might be really proud thinking that they were the important ones. But even though Jesus is going to reign in Jerusalem 
And even though he was born in Bethlehem, and even though he is the son of David and from the tribe of Judah, that's not where he decides to give birth to his kingdom. Instead, he goes up north, and the people they look down upon are the ones who get to receive him first. And the people who walked in darkness are going to be the ones who see the great light, and they are going to get to see the light of the world before anybody else, because he is judging the people of Judah for their hard-heartedness and their rebellion. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he picks up the same exact message that John preached, right? In this way, I mentioned how John was like an Elijah figure. Well, now Jesus is like an Elisha figure. If you remember back in the Old Testament, Elijah, he ascended to heaven um, from the Jordan River and he left behind Elisha, his disciple, his protege, who then went forth and had an even bigger and more abundant ministry than Elijah himself. Elijah and Elisha, they both preached repentance, but Elijah was more a hellfire and brimstone type of guy, whereas Elisha was more of a mercy type of guy, right? Elijah was a solitary figure who did a lot of things on his own until he went and called his disciple Elisha, whereas Elisha was a guy who trained up disciples and who had a group of people and was really producing mass revival. And so you kind of get to see where Matthew's heading here, right? If Elijah was John the Baptist and Jesus is Elisha, well, then the next thing we need to see is that Jesus needs to have disciples and he needs to start enacting this ministry of mercy and he needs to begin performing miracles to help draw people in and authenticate his ministry. And sure enough, that's what we read in the verses to come. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Uh, so this also, like, so I've already talked about this whole Elijah, Elisha comparison, but we also see that the calling of Jesus in, like him calling his disciples, that sounds very similar to whenever Elijah called Elisha, right? If you go back to the book of first Kings and Elijah calls Elisha, or it might be second Kings actually, uh, whenever Elijah calls Elisha, uh, no, it is first Kings. I'm pretty sure. Sorry, that's not important. Um, in the book of Kings, uh, whenever Elijah calls Elisha, he calls him and immediately Elisha leaves everything to go follow Elijah. He leaves his family. He leaves his job. He leaves everything. That's exactly what we see right here. So we're following in the footsteps of these Old Testament heroes and we get to see Jesus beginning to gather his posse. So he's walking by the Sea of Galilee now that he lives in Capernaum, which is on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing village. And he sees two brothers. There's Simon, who was called Peter, and there's Andrew, his brother, and they're casting their nets into the sea because they're fishermen. And Jesus uses their job uh, in order to ultimately paint a picture of what he wants them to do. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, the imagery of fishers of men is not something that's unique to the New Testament. It actually kind of calls back to Jeremiah and Amos in the Old Testament. And whenever you look at fishers of men back then, the imagery was actually of foreigners coming in and being fishers of men, as in taking the people of Israel captive and reining them in like fishermen uh, and basically taking them into captivity, right? And so the imagery of fishers of men uh, back in the Old Testament was the imagery of an invasion where these foreign powers are coming in and taking you captive as punishment for your sin. 
And I think Jesus is kind of employing that language in the same manner uh, to where it is the imagery of invasion, but it's almost a reversal. Whereas in the Old Testament, these were foreign invaders coming in to take people into exile. Jesus is actually appointing these new fishers of men to go amongst the people of Israel and then ultimately to all the nations to bring people back from exile. So it's a reversal, right? Rather than taking them to exile, they're bringing them back from exile. Uh, and this is just imagery that would make sense to a fisherman, right? They go out, they cast their nets, they reel the fish in, and then they separate the fish. That's the same exact thing that Jesus is calling them to do, but now with people, right? They're going to reel them in for the kingdom of God. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. You get the impression that these guys know who Jesus is, they have heard of who he is, and they have enough reason to be motivated to go follow him. And sure enough, whenever you compare this story to the other gospels, you see that there is some backstory and they have some previous encounters with Jesus. But the main thing is that they immediately leave their nets and followed, right? He's not just calling them to stop fishing for a day. When he says, follow me, he is inviting them to be his disciples. He is saying, hey, I'm going to walk over there. You walk with me. Where I stay, you stay. What I do, you do. What I teach, you're going to teach as well. So they literally get up and leave everything. This is not an easy calling but that's what they do. And then we see this go even further when you read about their friends. And going on from there, he saw two older, two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left their boat of their and their father and followed him. So these guys were apparently younger and they're still living with their father, yet they leave their family and they leave their profession and they go follow Jesus. And so we see Je Jesus gathering a group of people. He's gathering his disciples. Moving on. And Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So just like Elijah and just like Elisha and just like Moses, Jesus is going and he's performing these miraculous actions. And we're going to see some of these miracles going forward. But we get to see, if you're just reading this from the perspective of Matthew's original audience, this is checking off all the boxes that Jesus needs to check off, right? He is going off and he is preaching repentance. He's calling everybody back to God. He is preaching a kingdom. He is calling, he's telling everybody that the kingdom is near. He is gathering groups of people. He is performing miracles. He is the light shining in Galilee. He's doing all the things the prophet said he would do. He is doing the things that a king would do. Now, basically, if you're just reading this, you're probably, like, if you're the original Jewish audience, you're saying, okay, when's he going to start gathering soldiers to go wage war? And that's going to be the big plot twist of the whole story. And we're going to see that maybe Jesus is going to subvert some of their expectations. But Jesus goes and he's going from synagogue to synagogue and he's teaching and he's preaching. And more than being a pol politician, he's a rabbi. And he's going around and he's more focused on spiritual matters, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The word gospel means good news. Whenever we think of the word gospel, we typically think of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we have to realize that it's actually much broader than that because Jesus is preaching the gospel from the very beginning of his ministry. And so the gospel is the good news that the kingdom of heaven is here. Basically, it's like, hey, there's a new king in town. Everybody get ready. And I don't know if everybody recognizes that Jesus is that king yet, but very quickly they're going to start putting two and two together. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Notice that. It's not just Jews coming to Jesus. It's also Gentiles. 
right? So the Galileans, they were kind of viewed as like semi-Jewish to the Judean people because they were like borderland area. Uh, and so the people of Judah, they're not coming to Jesus, but the G Ga people of Galilee are, and then the people of Syria are. And then as a result of these people coming to Jesus first, we're going to see, and large crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So as a result of the growing crowd of people up north who follow Jesus, finally crowds from the south also begin to follow him. Uh, and people from the Decapolis come, and people from Jerusalem come, and people from Judea and from beyond the Jordan come. And by the end of chapter 4, we see Jesus establishing himself in his ministerial role. And so my whole point in all of this, right, is that in chapters 1 through 4, Matthew is trying to gauge the interest of his audience and he's trying to earn that interest and he's trying to seal to them and in their minds that Jesus has not only a legitimate claim to the throne, but the only legitimate claim to the throne. He has demonstrated time after time that Jesus is the Messiah. And where we leave off with him right here is with him having a full-fledged ministry. He has grown in popularity just like John grew in popularity. Now John's out in prison and Jesus is the new head honcho in town. Everybody's talking about him. He is the buzz of the town. He is not only the buzz of the town, he is the buzz of the entire nation, the buzz of the entire, really, region, because even people from Syria are coming to him. That's where we leave off in Matthew chapter 4. And so just to recap all this, I want to just do what we've been doing in all these videos. I want to talk about Jesus as Israel and Jesus as king. So this is how Matthew demonstrates Jesus as walking through the footsteps of Israel. First off, after passing through the waters, Jesus is guided by God into the wilderness for a time of testing. Where we left his story off last week was with Jesus passing through the waters, right? It was like the going through the Red Sea. He went through the Jordan River. He was escaping the metaphorical Egypt, Israel, and he was going into the wilderness. And we left off. That's back in Exodus chapter 14. Now he goes Exodus 15 through 18. He goes into the wilderness for a time of testing. As the Israelites were tested for 40 years, Jesus was tested for 40 days. As Moses fasted 40 days and nights, so too did Jesus. While Israel grumbled over bread, Jesus did not. While Israel tested God, Jesus did not. While Israel turned to idolatry, Jesus did not. Notice that the temptations that Matthew lists are sequentially in the same order that we find them in the book of Exodus. Exodus 16, 17, and 32. Right? And so if you're walking through it, you're like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. He's listing out different ways that the people of Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, and he's demonstrating that Jesus didn't do those things. Each of Jesus' responses to Satan come from Scripture reflecting on Israel's time in the wilderness. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8 in his three responses, but each of those responses is a reference back to the book of Exodus and what they did specifically at the beginning of that wilderness wandering. But in addition to this, after some testing, Jesus comes to dwell in a place where the kingdom of God is pronounced. Just as the people of Israel, after that time of testing, they eventually, in Exodus chapter 19, they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, where God shows up in a super powerful way and proclaims the good news of the kingdom, right? He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom saying, hey, I'm going to be your God. I am Yahweh. I'm the one who took you out of Egypt to make you my people, and I want to make a special covenant to you. Basically, Exodus 19 is God's proposal to the people of Israel, and that's exactly what we see Jesus doing right here. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The people of Israel, they got to Mount Sinai, and God's presence appeared. That's what Jesus is doing right here. 
Like Yahweh at Sinai, his appearance is accompanied by miraculous signs and a call to devotion. This is at the very end of Exodus chapter 19, where God basically shows up in a super powerful way. His presence descends on Mount Sinai with clouds and smoke and all these miraculous signs. And then he calls everybody to be faithful to him and faithful to his covenant. That's exactly what Jesus is doing at the end of chapter 4. He shows up, he's got this gospel that he's preaching, he's performing all these miracles, and everybody is being drawn to him. And so, if you're just seeing where this is heading, what happens once you hit Exodus chapter 20? In Exodus chapter 20, God begins to deliver the law, and he starts giving the Ten Commandments, and he gives other laws. Well, whenever we flip to Matthew chapter 5, what's Jesus going to do? He's going to ascend a mountain, and he's going to start preaching a sermon. And a lot, and the way he's going to start that sermon is he's going to be quoting a lot of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is going to give his version of the law, and he's going to talk about how he came to fulfill the law. So you see how these parallels are being established. But in addition to all this, we also have Matthew in these in this final chapter right here. Uh, he demonstrates that Jesus truly is the king of the Jews, right? He genuinely is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And this is how he does it. Firstly, he was tested in the wilderness and emerged without sin. So he has the necessary character to be the son of righteousness, to be the Messiah. His hunger for the word of God surpassed his hunger for bread. He trusted God fully and refused to test him. He was fully devoted to God, worshiping and serving him alone. Prophecy number seven, he's a light in Galilee. Number six, he announced the kingdom of God. Number seven, he gathered fishers of men. Number eight, he performed miraculous signs. And number nine, his words and works attracted Jews and Gentiles from all over. When you look at all these combined, you see that Matthew is giving one great, super big, super awesome defense for how Jesus has a legitimate claim to the throne. And if you're his original Jewish audience, you're reading this and your mind is being blown because this guy is checking off all the boxes. In the first four chapters, he has fulfilled seven prophecies and he has demonstrated that he has the right credentials, the right qualifications, the right character, the right actions, and even the right forerunner and the right social situations and cultural situations to be the Messiah they've been awaiting. And so at this point, in these first four chapters right here, Matthew has demonstrated that Jesus is legitimately the king of the Jews. And he legitimately is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And so, if you're reading this as the original Jewish audience, you're starting to think, okay, I think this Jesus guy, I think he's the real deal. And your next question is going to be, what does his kingdom look like? And as we go into Matthew chapter 5, that's going to be exactly what Matthew addresses. He's going to say, this is what Jesus' kingdom looks like, and he's going to give us the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, where the king, who has been authenticated, lays down his authority and demonstrates what his kingdom will exactly look like. And we're going to cover that starting in a few weeks, but before we do that, I want to actually take another little pause in the narrative, and I want to go look at the use of the Old Testament that we've seen in these past two chapters, in chapters 3 and 4 specifically. I want to look at uh, a few more of the prophecies that were quoted in chapters 3 and 4, and I also want to take a look at how Jesus used prophecy uh, and how Jesus specifically used the Old Testament quotations in that specific uh, temptation narrative. And so that's what we're going to do over the course of the next few weeks. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in, and I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. 
Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.